I want to welcome you guys to Gray Area. And on this platform, it is our mission to connect house music fans just wherever in the world they might be. But this interview is all about techno, specifically the duo of Cell Injection, which is David Flores and Mo Espinoza. How are you guys doing today? Good. Thank you. Yeah, doing well. Good. And for any uninitiated viewer, I think it bears mentioning that each of you on your own have had has had a very successful music career and an interview would, you know, and each of you has a career that could easily necessitate its own interview. And that would be a very interesting interview. But um, I, I was curious, you know, with everything you each already have going on, is it hard to find time for cell injection on top of that? Mo, you could take that away. Well, I mean, you know, outside of just our music careers, um, I mean, <clears throat> David is amongst the very some of the very few people in the world, I mean, that, you know, I talk to on a daily basis other than maybe like my spouse and my son. <laughs> so um, we, we have we have a pretty tight friendship, um, you know, with with us and our crew. We we um, and I think trying to actively create space for cell injection doesn't really feel like a necessity so much because, mm. um, it just feels kind of like a natural thing that happens when it, when, when the time comes for it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not something that we, I don't think we actively like pursue into cutting out and carving out time for, but, um, the time comes naturally. Well, that's, yeah. that's the best case scenario, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. Um, it's just it feels like an extension of of what we do and who we are, and and I think we're always just kind of excited and appreciative that people are still interested in us collaborating and doing things together. Sometimes, I see. And so with yeah, these like the old school heads. The, uh, sorry, it's just like you know, and like old school heads will will know us a bit more because we were a lot more active before, you know. So yeah. that's why, like, if we get a request to do cell injection, we're kind of like, well, okay, it's <laughs> not a very common thing these days. And do, it's not very common these days, you're saying? Not so much. We don't play together that much anymore, so it's a bit more special. Yeah, and we try to keep it. We try to keep it a special thing. I mean, I think I yeah. think it's something we enjoy doing, and when it comes up. And we have the opportunity to do it, and it's presented in the right space for the right people in the right place. Then, um, yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's just fun to do. I yeah. see. And so, with these spotlights, we like to take it all the way back to the beginning, so that if somebody wanted to watch this, they could they could kind of get the full story, not have to find little bits and pieces of it elsewhere. You know. So I want to do that with each of you individually. Mo, you first, because I know. Your music career basically extends back to when you were 13. You were still, you were already doing stuff professionally. Take me yeah. back to just your first experiences with music. Um, uh, first experiences with music goes back far, far more than that. Naturally, I'd assume most people could relate to that. Um, but yeah. I think I've always developed um, a strong admiration for the musicianship that goes into things. I, I, I recall at a young age, looking back at everything from watching, um, Miles Davis to Eddie Van Halen to any kind of like musician who was incredibly skilled at what they did and saw how they crafted, um, their skills with their instrument. 
And that intrigued me. And I wanted to be good at something like that. I, I liked the idea of mastering something. And um, that carried through, you know, my teenage years trying to be in bands and, and trying to write music um, in rock bands and um, discovered the underground dance culture in the mid 90s. And um, I was so enamored by the fact that this music felt like something from the future, some some new form of of art that uh, was, you know, it was just incredibly influential for me. And, you know, I found myself in studios at a pretty young age um, trying to learn how to produce because the music sounded alien to me and I had no tangible idea of how that music was created, um, where it came from, where did these sounds come from? And, you know, that led me down the path of learning about synthesizers and drum machines and how this music was put together. And, uh, yeah, I mean that it, just the, the inspiration of being in a recording studio and working with musicians and even joining the forces of classical instruments with electronic music and everything else. Um, I think from the moment I, I, I was, this, you know, a teenager, I knew I wanted to do this for the rest of my life and there was nothing else in the world that I wanted to do. And I think I've spent the mass majority of my life pursuing this um this art and this the ability to express myself musically through this form okay and david same question you know what were what was the first exposure you had to music or the first memories you have involving music um pretty much since i was a kid like even my my mom and my dad would remind me that uh, when I was like super young, I don't know, like three or four years old, I was always really attracted to music. The only difference with like with Mo is like I never wanted to pick up an instrument. Like I always just enjoyed listening to music and and uh, discovering different types of music at a young age. And like I had I had cousins in like the mid late '80s when I was about you know, five or six, going to like backyard parties at uh, like family parties, and there would be DJs playing like hip hop and electro stuff. And like, I've always been a big fan of that stuff. And not until like the early nine, early to mid nineties when I got into like dance music and, and house music and techno and stuff and saw DJs and what it was. And that's when I got interested in even more in the music, but I don't know, for some reason picking up an instrument and learning how to play something was just never, it was never something that I was like wanting to do. I, I saw a DJ. I was like, I want a DJ. I want to learn how to scratch. I want to do all that stuff. And like that was like how I started in the beginning. Yeah, I see. And and you two did know each other before before techno, right? Like when um, David, I suppose you would have been mostly DJing, and then Mo, you would have been kind of mostly doing stuff in the studio. But you guys, you guys did have like a relationship before droid before any of the techno stuff happened right it was just um, it was like right right just right before or right at the beginning of droid because we have this mutual friend um victor uh, he used to work at this record shop in la called higher source and this was like in like 2000 2001 i used to go shopping there and buy techno and he was friends with mo and he was like, hey, man, I got to hook you up with these guys that always come in here and buy techno records. They're, like, going to start a, a party crew and start throwing events. And that's when he linked me up with Mo. 
And that's how yeah. we kind of connected back then. But this was like, I think it was like 2001, maybe, or 2002. Yeah. Yeah, it was around then. Yeah. Uh, it was definitely 2000 or 2001. I, I would lean on 2000, but whatever. Yeah, something like, like yeah, yeah, so long ago. <laughs> I see. Yeah, um, the, I mean, just for context, um, the record store that, that Victor worked at, um, it was called Higher Source, and it was um, – it was a very, very kind of uh, important culturally hub for DJs in Southern California. I mean, there was a couple of them. There was Dr. Free Clouds and, and Higher Source were kind of like the two primary record stores where everyone who was in underground dance culture, DJing culture would kind of go there. So it was, it was definitely like a meeting point. Um, mm-hmm. I had met Vic earlier in the, in the early 90s and... You know, he used to kind of wash me off as just this dumb kid who used to make a mess in the record bins. Um, <laughs> but he knew that we were kind of diehard techno fans. And, you know, L.A. has a, a huge rave culture. I mean, there, I think people underestimate how massive the rave scene was on the West Coast in the 90s. Um, so even, you know, before me and David had physically met over the years when we discussed and we were like, oh, did you go to this party? You go to this party? We can like, oh, yeah. we always were like... Yeah, I saw that same DJ that same night play that same set, and like we were probably yeah. feet away from each other, and probably didn't even recognize it at the time. But we were at so many of the same parties. Yeah, um, but the one thing that was very common across um, the rave scene <clears throat> in in the '90s was that techno really wasn't a mainstay. Um, you know, trance and drum and bass and hardcore and all these things were big. Um, but techno was kind of on the fringe and there were people like DJ hyperactive and Adam X and Frankie bones who, who permeated techno on the West coast, but it still was on the fringe of things. Um, so to meet people who were into techno was a rare thing, or at least into Mm. techno on the level that me and David were in. So, um, I think when our, when our mutual friend saw, um, David's dedication to the music and he knew my dedication to the music and, and all the endeavors I was, I was trying to pursue in terms of like starting a record label and trying to create this movement of creating a, a techno scene on the West coast when it, when it literally didn't exist. Um, it was just instantly like, and you know, we, we were, we both kind of lived in the same region, I guess uh, is Downey considered San Gabriel Valley. Yeah. No, it's 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 still it's LA LA County, but I mean, it yeah, it's not, all LA County, but it, we're not far from each other. We're like borderline, yeah. very close neighborhoods. So, like, our mutual friend was like, "Hey, dude, I got this my uh, this dude David who comes in this, into the record store all the time, and he, he makes techno, and he lives in Downey, and and you know, you guys got to meet." <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, fuck it, let's do it." So he gave me his phone number. And um, I don't know about your recollection, David, but for me, I think we hit it off instantly. It was, yeah, a, it was for sure. <laughs> a very, very easy, easy friendship to develop on. And I think um, when I when I met David, I, I went down to his studio and I was listening to what he was doing. And from what I remember personally, um, David didn't really have um, the like the the what's the word I'm looking for this this like incredible um, desire to like push a career focused, you know, it seemed more like this dude who was like making beats for fun the way like a kid would be playing on a PlayStation just to play games. 
Yeah, yeah. And I went to the studio and I heard what this dude was doing and I was fucking floored. Excuse my language, but I was just like, (laughs) what the hell, dude? I'm like, you got to release this shit. And he was just like, eh, nobody cares. (laughs) No, dude, I'm starting a label. We got to do this. We got to make this happen. And it kind of like, it it just went from there, you know? I just just think back then I just was, I never thought that you could even make a career. You know what I mean? Like just be releasing music. And I know, I know it was a thing, but it just was so far out of my scope that I never tried, you know, like I would just make tracks and just no one would hear them besides some friends. That's about it, you know? And so is that to say that David, your first kind of like where you fit into the whole droid thing was originally on the recording front. Like they, they originally saw, like yeah. saw that as the, the place where you most realistically fit in. Yeah, exactly. In the beginning. Yeah. I see. Because I wasn't, I wasn't like playing, I wasn't really playing gigs back then. I was just like, making mixtapes and stuff so it's not like they could see how how i was as a dj but yeah the first first thing was with um producing in the music yeah i mean i'll 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 say flat out um you know it's 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 very rare um when you meet a producer who's got um this like extremely untapped talent somebody who can just make music so effortlessly and so carelessly there's a level of purity to it and um when when i was starting the droid thing my my intention was to really create this kind of west coast techno movement some sort of grassroots movement it was very unclear to me exactly at the time what direction it would take where it would go and do i even know enough artists to start a label to release music is there enough people in the city that can represent the sound and what it's going on and um, meeting David was instantly like, a, yeah, this fucking dude is really good, and um, he's got he's got the talent and the potential to go all the way. And if there's any role that I could play in, in um, you know, in in that, I'd be willing to. And obviously, um, his contributions to the record label and the music he's put in was was pivotal in 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 us really forming our sound and what we did. I see. And I feel like it's important to note at this part that at that time you were going by audio injection, right, David? Yeah. Yeah. Actually in the very beginning, even before I thought of auto injection, I was using David F. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. The very, the very yeah. first droid release that we put out was called negative one. And it was a compilation of different artists. Uh, DJ hyperactive was on it. Developer was on it. Um, uh, Ryan Jones, um, there was a very famous or popular DJ here who's part of the Moon Tribe crew um, that used to go by the name of Automat, and David did an incredible track on it, and it was called. Uh, uh, he went under the name no, David man. F. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I can't remember the name of the track. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's funny is that on that release we did a collaboration track on that too, a drum cell and David F track, um, where we sampled that Those sample. Are- this is Space a remix, Odyssey, wasn't it? 2001? Yeah, it was from Space Odyssey. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a very, very early on collaboration. I see. Yeah. And cool. obviously, you two would go on to collaborate quite a bit, notably your 2009 EP, Cell Injection EP. How yeah. Did, how did, and that's, that's obviously where Cell Injection gets its name. Before you guys were even going, is that it was. <laughs> Not a portmanteau, but a combination of both of your names. It was 
drum cell and Pretty audio much. injection cell cell injection. Um, how, yeah. how did that how did that EP come together? Was that your guy? No, that wasn't your first time collaborating on a track, but was that your first collaborative EP? First was yeah, it was because before that we were we were just doing remixes before that. Yeah, I can't remember in in the top, top of my head the timeline of what came first and what didn't. I do know that that's where the name kind of stuck. Um, I remember at the time um, uh, we I went out to your house in Downey and we were working on tracks in the studio, um, and we put together a three track EP or a two track EP or something. Yeah. Two with the remixes. Two tracks yeah, with the remixes. And, and we didn't know what to call it. And it just like, it came off the whim. There was no deep thought, no long, you know, making a list of names of what possibly. It was just like, yeah, Cell Injection. It was just called the Cell Injection EP. It was Drum Cell and Audio Injection, Cell Injection EP. I think Tim Xavier yeah. did a remix, uh, Tony Rohr, and... That's right. Uh, I can't no, remember. No, no, that, was, that wasn't that one. No, no? That Fuck. was a... Uh, <laughs> I know, no, no, I did it so long ago. No, the first the first EP we did together, we didn't call it Cell Injection yet. We were just Drum Cell and Audio Injection. And that was the, the Communicate one. That's right. I stand yeah. corrected. Yeah, the Cell Injection EP is one we'd got Luis Flores to do a remix. And That's right. I forgot who uh, else. Yeah, yeah. That's the yeah, one that was like 2009. Yeah, the, as a matter of fact, now that you say that, it's bringing it back. When we did the, was that bottle opener was on the Communicate EP. Yeah, yeah. That's the so one that did. like put us on kind of put us on the map. Yeah, we got we got super lucky. It was like right when Beatport was just like launching and it was super early on and we did a track called Bottle Opener and uh Speedy J had picked it up and uh and Chris Liebing. Chris Liebing and like it was it was it was interesting because it was like overnight we saw all of our heroes playing our music and we were like, what the hell? And yeah. at that time, when you sold a lot of music on Beatport, um, the numbers were tremendously higher than they are these days. So yeah. um, it it brought an instant, like overnight, amount of attention to to the collaborative EP that we had done together. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then um, we started getting like remix requests and stuff like that. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, so, I still totally screwed that up. Would would you be would you say that that first EP that first collaborative EP or the cell injection EP was the one where you kind of had the eureka moment that you realized you had some you know really interesting creative chemistry between the differences in your approaches? Definitely the first one. That's yeah. uh, the drum cell and audio injection EP. Yeah, yeah. That that okay. bottle opener track even even till today sometimes uh, gets dropped here and there <laughs> and. Yeah, it, that that definitely opened up a lot of doors, and it kind of um, we we ended up doing some remixes for Joel Moore. Mm. Um, oh yeah, Chris Liebing. Chris Liebing, uh, and for his what was that EP called? Uh, Just Alf Alf und Ab. Yeah, Alf und Ab or something like that, which is some German yeah. name. Like it, Dust, remix Dustin Zahn. Yeah, um, yeah. So people, it was yeah. it was interesting because after that first record. Um, a lot of remix opportunities opened up from people that, you know, we've always kind of like never even dreamed would be possible to, to, to collaborate and work with, mm. which then led up to the cell injection EP. I see. Yeah. Okay. And when was your first official performance as cell injection? 
because I know it was just the name of the EP before it was the name of your project. But when when did you appear on a bill as Cell Injection first? Damn, it was one of the interface parties. I want to say yeah. I want to say was it the one with Tim Xavier and Luis Flores? Um, Do you remember that one? Where it was actually as Cell Injection. Yeah, it's possible. I think uh, one of my my partners at the time when we were doing Droid, um, and you know. Uh, we had started doing these kind of infamous warehouse parties that were labeled under the name Interface. Uh, the party started to pick up quite a bit of steam, and that's kind of really when the L.A. techno scene really started to grab some roots and a pretty strong foundation. And uh, we we decided that, you know, David and I should, for once, play together as opposed to just writing music together. And... Uh, I don't even remember exactly who came up with the idea to put it on the flyer as cell injection instead of drum cell versus audio injection. I, I can't I, remember either, man. And I wish I had some memory. sort of like memory of that, but um, it just, like I said, all of this stuff, which is, it, it, it's a, it's a credit and a tribute to in its own that like, it's never been forced or some kind of like contrived idea right. to do things. It's always been just this natural progression of like, eh, it happened and then like oh cool it's working oh this happened oh cool let's continue to do it yeah that works you know which um is it, at the same time it's also a pretty familiar parallel to our friendship as well you know it's always pretty easy going and just like yeah let's let's do it Fuck yeah it. yeah <laughs> and how how is a cell injection set different from how you each might play individually like is it just you meeting in the middle or is it more like it's like a whole greater than the sum of its parts? Yeah, I like I, I think it's us meeting in the middle because um, with our you know with our own individual elements and stuff. Because um, like I tend to play a bit more jack and funky, um, and Mo likes to play a little bit heavier and darker. So like when we do a cell injection set, we both kind of like yeah definitely meet in the middle. Like I won't get. I won't get a little bit. I won't get too funky and too jack in. He won't go super dark and heady. Unless sometimes he'll just be like, "Hey, I want to play this." Now, like, dude, go for it, you know. But definitely meeting in the middle somewhere. And even if we do lean more into our personal styles, I think it also adds to the dynamics of the set because yeah. it's not like a, a a purity of one particular set. It it kind of adds to this whole flow of where things can be driving and aggressive or super weird and hypnotic to funky and and dancing and upbeat and jacking you know so it's like mm. it kind of adds to this very kind of storytelling vibe to it right your styles yeah. aren't so different from one another that it would be too hard of a break from what the other person is playing at any time really no, yeah, I think um, we've also been able to naturally grow this ability to be able to play together and kind of know each other's styles well enough where um, you can kind of already tell where the other person's going before they even go there, you know? Yeah. So there's no like hard tug and pull. And, and it's all about giving each person their own time and space um, to take things in the direction that they feel they need to take them in. And then, you know, mixing in other loops and other stuff on top of what he's doing while he's playing, but not overdoing it to take away from what he's doing, but just to play a supportive role. 
mm-hmm. then kind of hand the baton off to me when it's my time to do my thing. And then he plays his supportive role behind it. And it, and it creates a, a pretty natural flow. And, you know, there's never any real big surprises because I think there's good chemistry in terms of being able to, um, to read each other well. That makes sense. And walk me through some highlights of the, specifically the cell injection discography since that, that first EP. Well, I think we named one of the, yeah, there was like, uh, I think one of the more successful remixes we did after the first EP was like the one for, um, for Dustin's on, which was like 2008 or nine or something like that. Yeah. And then um, for Chris Liebing um, on CLR, that kind of gave us a big, big break as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, we yeah, did Jerome one for Moore. on on, on Ibadan Records as well. Oh, for Jerome Seidenham. <laughs> yeah. Um, who else did we do? God, so long ago, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Man, early, there's been, there's been quite a quite a few highlights and I, I mean i even though maybe it's hard for us to cherry pick a couple um of them and maybe i should have overlooked our discography before we got on to this conversation <laughs> but um i would say that all the collaborative records that we've done together have been incredibly well received and um people seem to really enjoy them and they tend to be a highlight i see okay and then the how would you say that specifically cell injection style has changed over the years. And this could be on the recording front or on the performance front. When you, when you look back at, you know, a set you guys had played 10 years ago, and then you look back at a set you played sometime this year or last year, what would you think? What are some observable differences? You know, I'll jump in on this one real quick. Um, because, I think one of the very first like really big gigs that we ended up get, getting a cell injection was we got invited to play at Berghain. Um, what year was that, David? 2010? 2010. Yeah, I always get it mixed up 2009 or 2010. And um, usually they, they give you know each artist about four hours to play at Berghain. But since mm-hmm. it was the two of us, we got, a, we got an eight-hour set, I believe. Oh, wow. And, um, Seven or eight. Yeah, seven or eight hour set. And and we played opening too. And, you know, I went we I went back and I've listened to the recordings of that. And of course, because our music selection was naturally a little bit deeper in the beginning because it was an opening set, um, that room packed up fast. It wasn't like we played like to an empty room for most of the night because it was an opening set. Um it was it was packed to the brim and and full. And um, our styles were significantly much different than they are now. But I, I don't know if that has anything to do with us individually and more so how much this, the sound of techno has evolved over the years. Sure. And the way yeah, we kind definitely. of perceived them. Um, but even though I think technically we were never allowed to publish those mixes um, publicly, <laughs> I think this is even before that rule kind of came into place. We had posted that that long set on on SoundCloud, and I had some like crazy amount of hundreds of thousands of downloads or, or views. And I've always attributed to the fact that 
Um, sometimes I would even say that the majority of gigs that I had received in Europe at that time came more from that DJ set recording than from any record I think I had ever put out at the time. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, did we did we use some of it for this uh, CLR podcast? I can't remember. Yeah, we might have or taken no. like a one hour edit excerpt of it that was on the CLR podcast. Which for for some of the younger folks that don't know at the time. The CLR podcast was easily probably one of the most listened to and biggest podcasts um, globally around them. the world. Nice. So it reached a lot of people. And, and like people would get gigs based off of doing a CLR podcast back in the yeah. day. Yeah, I probably did more for your career to do a CLR podcast than it would be to <laughs> yeah. release a record, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, and then over the years, um, I think as David and I have both kind of grown and as, as individuals, as artists, I think, yeah, it's noticeable that our, our individual styles have changed. Um, you know, David is definitely with the change into doing more truncate stuff, um, has kind of pioneered a sound that, um, you know, defines him. And many people have also, in my opinion, have, copied what he's done and he's kind of created his own kind of lane for it and my sound as well has gone into its own depths and within my own side projects with like belief defect and hypoxia and it's I, I've, I've gone more of a cerebral route with my music and all that stuff but still when we play together um we find common ground and it still works really well i see and the other big thing that you guys are working on that isn't a cell injection thing, but it is a Dave and Mo thing is the observe parties. What was, what was the inspiration that led to, to the observe parties? You want me to take this one? Mo, too? Me? <laughs> Mo, you're better at, you're better at articulating this. Um, well, you know, in a lot of ways it, it would be, it would be a lie to not say that observe is kind of a natural continuation to what we had started with droid in the early days. Um, but at the same time, we, we, we wanted to kind of reinvent our vision and our approach towards things. And, um, with a new circle of, uh, of collaborators that all have their own input and their own, their own ideas. So, you know, we started observe as a way to continue to do events, um, in LA and around, you know, the U S or the world or whatever you want to say. And, um, since David didn't play such a massive role in the promoter chair, when we were doing droid, he was more of a contributor to the label. Um, I really wanted to bring him into the seat with us all to kind of um, have his input and his say and how we curate the events, because I think he has an incredibly positive and unique perspective towards curating lineups and how we put together events. <clears throat> so we had our own vision and our own kind of plan and, you know, rightfully so just to label it, um, observe primarily as me, David and Greg, who is Octiform, who's kind of the visual elements of the event. And, uh, yeah, I think, um, we're super happy with the direction that it's taken. Um, I think our production has gotten tighter. Our lineups have gotten better. Um, our entire ethos and our kind of, um, you know, cultural look at how events should be curated, um, kind of really, 
is represented well through the brand because unlike most other promoters who just want to like book the next biggest DJ and throw a party and, you know, make money and then go on. And it's just kind of like a, 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 a flash flight income. We kind of perceive the whole concept of throwing events and doing parties as an art form in its own, you know? So there it's, it's a lot more, um, yeah, it's more it's more deep for us. You know, we don't want to just throw parties for the sake of throwing parties. We want to make an art form out of the out of the ability to promote and put something together that's special enough that people kind of walk away from and remembering for a long period of time. Definitely. Yeah, and and, and you know, like with most thing, and on top of that, it's like we try to have like every party be unique in some sort of way, not just having putting a warehouse and putting some lights and something in it. You know, like. Um, something special, something that people remember, but also like we want to get to the level where we could book anybody and people will come regardless of the names, you know, like that's really important to us. Cause like we want people to come for the experience rather than just coming because of who is booked at the parties. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely. And I know that you've had observer events in Los Angeles, Detroit. I went to one in Denver. Are there other cities than those mm. three where, Observe this touchdown. We did Miami. Okay. We did Miami um, years back. Uh, Chicago. Yeah. Chicago. Um, a couple times in Chicago. And you said Detroit, right? Yeah. Did we do? No, we didn't do New York. Um, no, we haven't done New York, uh, but we do have Mexico City on ooh. deck for an upcoming Observe event. Um, and yeah. we, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we should say too early, but there's been some talks of even maybe taking the brand over to China to do a small ooh. tour. It's kind of, it's kind of been on on the table. Um, and we do receive a lot of requests from different places of people like, Hey, we would love to bring observe here. We would love to bring observe here. And, um, you know, if we're working with the right collaborators that could meet us on our vision and (laughs) without having to compromise our, you know, artistic integrity and our view on the way how we want to do it, then we're always up for expanding and moving into new directions. Yeah, definitely. And you, you've each made commentary somewhat recently about the lifespan of the average techno track. You know, David, you just tweeted well, about it. <laughs> well, no, no, it wasn't just you because Mo and I had a conversation oh. and he echoed a lot of the same things. Yeah. How uh, funny. D- did I literally this... just tweeted that like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, does this, does this, like, does this reality change? Anything about how you produce music, how you play music, even how you move in the industry? Well, for me, um, I think it, I, I think it kind of does, but I'm trying to get away from that. Like lately, I've just been trying to get back to how I used to make music ten years ago, just like making tracks and just not caring about if it's going to be well received or not. I got too caught up on like, oh, is this going to do well? Is it going to work well? Blah blah blah. And just like, I got to get out of that mentality, you know, and, and get back to just making tracks and, hey, if it lasts more than a week, great. If it doesn't, then, you know, just move on. Just got to keep going. So that, that characteristic of yours as a producer that Mo commented on a while ago, you feel like you maybe deviated away from that for a little bit? Oh, yeah, 100%. I, like, once I started getting more successful, I started worrying about, if my track's going to do well or, you know what I mean? And just like, I, I need to get away from that. And I have more, more so lately, definitely have. 
but also just finding the inspiration to make tracks has been a bit harder these days as well. <laughs> I think sure. that's a natural progression for an artist, period. I mean, I think yeah. I think that's something that everybody has to go through. You know, I don't care who out there is such a purist techno person that they don't give a shit about what anyone thinks about their art. I call bullshit on it. I think on some sort of subconscious level that turns to permeate you on some way. And I think for any long career based musician, artist does not even exactly related to <laughs> DJing, but in, in any art form, um, I think part of the steps of growing over a long period of time of an artist is to go through that process where um, the, the thought of external validation starts to wear at you. And I think you, when you push through that and you overcome it on the other side and you start to reevaluate, um, what that means and you start to go back to doing it purely for yourself is, is, is part of the growth process. And I think that everyone needs to go through it at some point. And I think that's when you really hit your stride. That's when you're like, fuck it. I've got the experience. I've got the years behind me. Um, I've been through the shit. I've, I've felt overly critical about myself. Now I'm at a point in my life where I don't fucking care anymore, or I'll try to pretend harder that I don't care anymore. <laughs> and, and you, and you start to, you know, you start to really kind of mature into, uh, into a bigger and better place. Yeah. So, and over the, the past decade or so that you each have maybe gone through that, a similar metamorphosis in that way, there's yeah. been a whole new generation of fans that have entered the scene after, you know, maybe some of them after outgrowing EDM and starting to explore, you know, deeper things, more underground things, stuff like that. Have you noticed any differences in this, in this wave of fans that maybe has just discovered your music or discovered techno in general? Yeah, hundred percent. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, maybe we're creatures of habit or maybe we're old school from, from what people like to label it. Um, just to go back to your earlier question about how the short shelf life, you know, the industry will always find ways to adapt to what's easier and what's what's better to, for marketability. How do we turn DJs and artists into cookies and, and ice cream to sell on a shelf? You know, what works better? Um, but, uh, I mean, I think time after time, I think the world has always kind of proved to us that no matter how these kind of like really overwhelming capitalist agendas seem to permeate into our scene. Um, artists who kind of strict stick to their form and what they do and make it about the art before they make it anything seem to have the most longevity and, and, and more profound careers for the long run. So yeah, sometimes there is that pressure of, like, oh, does music even matter anymore? Because it only has this one week shelf life. If I, why are people getting booked? Is it because they did a great album? Is it because they are incredible DJs? Or is it because they just have overly successful social media standards? I mean, I don't know. Um, but I think we're artists through and through. And that really kind of brings us back to sticking to our guns. And navigating sticking to your guns and sticking to your artistic integrity um, in this new world where everything is about instant gratification and social media attention and, and online hype about things. It's tricky, man. It's tricky to find where you fit. 
And it's tricky to even sometimes question yourself. Am I willing to deal with all this bullshit that's required to continue to do what I love? Or is it better to just stand in the background and do what I love without having all the successful accolades that come along with it? Um, I think there's a lot of people out there that have found a fine balance to be able to kind of do both. And I think there's a lot of really talented producers who kind of sit in the background and still trying to figure out how to navigate the world that we live in today. Absolutely. Well, that's everything I've got. Um, I learned a lot for sure. Is there anything else, any other urgent things people should understand about cell injection that I haven't asked you about? <laughs> Nothing's really urgent. Um, it's nothing urgent. <laughs> like Mo was saying, we just kind of do everything. We go with the flow and, right. and everything just comes naturally, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's how it should be. Well, thank you so much for your yeah. time guys. It's been an absolute pleasure for me and thank you to the viewers. Um, you know, I learned something. I hope you learned something as well and we'll see yeah, you next time sure. guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Sorry for talking so much. It's good. It took the words out of my mouth. Cheers, man. Peace.